Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 23, Greek Conclusions, Part 1. Last time I took a step backwards in time to look at the satire play, that enigmatic comic burlesque that lightened the mood at the end of a day of tragedy and high-flown poetry. The satire remains one of the most mysterious elements of Greek theatre, and once again we can only lament that we have so few examples of the genre through which to try to understand it. I then rather rashly said that I would sum up in one final episode for season one of the podcast and look at the legacy of the ancient Greek theatre. When I started to really think about that, I quickly realised two things. Firstly, what I needed to still say was going to take more than one episode, and secondly, that the idea of summing up the Greek legacy was an unrealistic ambition, however long that last episode was to be. In a sense, everything we discuss on the podcast from now on, that whole history of Western theatre, is the Greek legacy. And it's that fact that was the main thought behind keeping the podcast as a more or less chronological review of theatre in the first place. I quickly recalibrated and decided a two-part conclusion was needed and justified, even with somewhat curtailed ambitions. It's the podcaster's nightmare of committing to the over-promise on the recording. I live and learn. So I am going to talk a little about the legacy of the ancient Greek theatre, but mostly over this episode and in part two, I want to conclude the Greek story and take us a little further towards the Roman period. Then I'm going to pick up on some aspects of that story that I think need to be fleshed out further, or where the emphasis did not quite come across in the way I'd intended in the previous episodes. It's nothing that changes the fundamentals of what I have presented so far, but there are some areas where some more detail is warranted to help complete the picture. As you know, episode one of this podcast was my first attempt at podcasting and the first time that I had done anything close to the academic realm in many years, so I've been learning and relearning as I went along. And as much as I might wish to change some aspects of the early episodes, that doesn't really work in the podcasting format, so I'm going to update some subjects here and hope that you can detect an improvement in the presentation and quality of the discussion of the plays, the ideas, the people and the history that surrounds them while forgiving me for any early quality issues. Part of the enjoyment of podcasting has been getting to grips with the technical side of recording and making the episodes available, something that was completely new to me. And again, I hope you've heard an improvement in the audio quality over the weeks. It's something that I continue to work on to give you the best possible podcast experience. This is episode 23, and if you're listening in real time, you'll know that I launched the podcast in early May 2020. I started the initial research at the beginning of March, not knowing that in the UK, as elsewhere, we were heading towards a period of total lockdown thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic. On the 16th of March, theatres in the UK shut their doors at a few hours' notice in response to that pandemic. It was a shock, even though I'd been at the London Palladium for a concert two days earlier and could see London shutting down around me. People were already voting with their feet and deciding not to frequent crowded places or to be out and about if they weren't feeling quite well. But the initial reports of the likely length of lockdown were optimistic and this was not the first time theatres had been shut by an epidemic. Through the general media and arts programming, we were quickly reminded of the closures of London theatres in the Elizabethan period, thanks to regular summer visitations of the plague, and Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year became strangely popular. 
As the shutdown took hold, my planned theatre trips over the next two weeks were cancelled and others followed. I kept myself busy reading about the mass gatherings of Athenians in the open air for their theatre fix and trying to reimagine what that experience would have been like. The cool morning air blowing off the sea at the Theatre of Dionysus suddenly seemed a very attractive place to be. Now, six months later, theatres are just trying to reopen, toying with how socially distanced performances could work and be safe for both creatives and audiences and be viable. All of this in the shadow of a possible second lockdown as infections rise again. Difficult times. If you're listening in real time or in the near future, I'm sure you had a similar experience. I'm sure, like me, you've been doing your best to keep up with theatre through streamed performances and television arts programming. I think we can all agree that it's not the same as being at the live performance. I, and others before me, have said that what's so special about theatre is that every performance is a unique communal social experience, and the lack of that experience in the last few months has, for me, only reinforced that knowledge. Suddenly, all the disadvantages of the indoor theatre are laid before us, and the realities for those in the industry are stark. Although I was starting this podcast alongside a day job that didn't finish until the end of June, I was working from home and with commuting time suddenly available, I had more time to learn about the Athenians and their relationship with theatre. I'd imagined hours of research spent in libraries, an environment I enjoy almost as much as the theatre, but that was not to be, not yet at least. And books delivered in the mail quickly became a lifeline. The internet and being connected through it to the world of second-hand books and digital academic papers was never more valued than at this time. Just as we were hearing about the rising global epidemic, I was reading the Theban trilogy and about the history of Athens where the impact of plague and disease looms large. As we saw news reports from the US about the question of mask-wearing becoming politicised, I was trying to get to grips with how the mask in theatre worked, why it was used and has had such a lasting impact. Although we've been thrust into a unique situation in our times, most of what I was researching suddenly seemed very familiar. I found myself reflecting on the level of fear and anxiety that the ancients must have felt in these circumstances. In modern times, we have a much greater understanding of disease and transmission, and yet still the level of anxiety was palpable as we lived through what was hopefully the worst of the pandemic. With the ancient lack of knowledge, was it worse for them? Or was their trust in the divine enough of a coping mechanism? We've seen in the summer of 2020 how easily panic and misinformation can spread on a global scale. Take that feeling down to a city level, add a hot summer, the locking of city gates and the ever-present fear of an unexpected death, and perhaps it does become easier to imagine what a pressure cooker of anxiety Athens and other cities could become. Yet through all of this, theatre was maintained, and the next year's festivals were being prepared for, and life went on. In these circumstances, it's easy to see Athens as a cultural beacon that holds a special place in Western culture, but we need to be careful. Athens was that cultural beacon, but much else too, and I'll return to that point later. And for those of you listening in the far future, I hope all of this is just an interesting side note on recent or ancient history, and that your now is a kind of normal that allows you to live an enjoyable and fulfilled life. A life when you can get to a theatre when you like, and experience that moment when the lights dim, the curtain rises, or whatever happens in your time to mark the start of a play, and you're transported to a world that isn't quite yours, but is nevertheless recognisable and speaks to you in a unique way.
But for now, back to the history. And to start with, we have to follow two paths to get to a point where we can leave the story of Greek tragedy and Greek comedy. As you'll remember, the story of the Greek tragedies, as I told it, ends with Euripides in a period that crosses over to the rise of old comedy. And Euripides himself made attempts to merge forms in the later works with tragedies that have happy endings and where a version of the satire play becomes the main event with the Bacchae. But he was the last of the greats. Although names of poets who continued to write tragedy after Euripides are recorded, none of their plays survive and none are spoken of in contemporary or near-contemporary accounts in the same way as the three great poets that we have discussed. There is evidence of theatrical dynasties developing, with sons, grandsons and other relations of the great tragedians being mentioned, but no one of real enduring stature. Of course, the destruction of so much material affects our view, and maybe the contemporary audiences still found new work exciting and something to look forward to. But time and place plays its part in the generation of great art and it's speculated that changes in society meant that there was no up-and-coming dramatist working in the tragic form that were good enough to be the next Aeschylus, Sophocles or Euripides. If all the kudos, and more frankly, the income, were now to be had writing comedy, then the incentives to write tragedy became reduced, and this is in addition to the general reduction in theatrical activity that the reduced city fortunes allowed. At the Dionysia, the revival of an old play was introduced to start the day's proceedings. Euripides proved the most popular, judging by the frequency of revivals. But the decline of the importance of tragedy now looks like an inevitability. The role of the poet and the playwright diminished, as the role of the producer-director and the actor became more prominent. In fact, actors could become real stars in their day. By the time Aristotle was writing and laying down his rules of theatre, he was also complaining of actors who cared more about their own fame than the plays they performed in, citing that an actor could request changes to the plot and script to suit his own self-aggrandising purposes. At about 350 BCE, new rules were introduced at the Dionysia, stipulating that the three leading actors at the festival had to appear in one play by each of the contemporary dramatists. Clearly, the influence of the great actor was considered a deciding factor to the point of unfairness. About the same time, there are reports of actors who were able to get safe passage through battle lines and in some cases became the carriers for messages and played a part in negotiations between warring parties. Fame used, one hopes, to good purpose. Famous as some may have become, actors were never accepted into the mainstream of the middle and upper classes. Their stature was maybe held in higher regard than in later periods in history, but they were still on the edges of society. What a change from the quasi-religious early plays, where the actor was all but anonymous in mask and robe, and served the play which served the gods. During his reign, Alexander promoted theatre and sponsored performances, and the building of theatres throughout his realm. The confines of performances only at the Dionysia festivals was finally broken, as were many of the established conventions. Alexander seems to have seen entertainment as a binding force in his vast and diverse empire. On one occasion, it's recorded that 3,000 performers from across his lands were assembled to celebrate a military victory with a great pageant. Perhaps the idea came from the Egyptian arm of his empire, where there was a long tradition of pageants going back to the Abydos Passion Play and beyond. If you need a reminder about the Abydos Passion Play, 
have a listen to episode one of the podcast. With the rise of the Ptolemaic Empire, and particularly under Ptolemy II, who ruled Egypt from 283 to 246 BCE, the centre of culture in the Mediterranean world moved firmly to Egypt. Ptolemy II was the son of the general Ptolemy Soter, who took over the Egyptian part of Alexander's kingdom that included Attica and the Levant. Under his son, the empire expanded and reached its heights of cultural achievement. He was an active patron of the arts and science, paying retainers to poets, mathematicians and astronomers, among others. Some of the claims of his achievements are undoubtedly exaggerations, but he is confidently credited with instigating the assimilation of the Library of Alexandria. The estimates of scrolls held there ranges from 4,000 to 40,000, and it was said to include complete collections of the works of Aeschylus and Sophocles, along with many other Greek works. Regardless of the actual numbers, the library was said to be the greatest collection of art and literature in the ancient world. But after centuries as a thriving institution, it was neglected in the later Roman period, and the collection was reduced through that neglect and fires, and was already well past its prime when it was destroyed by fire when the city fell to Caliph Omar in 641 CE. Preservation of what remained fell to the Byzantines in Constantinople. As the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire and a largely Greek-speaking city, it was the natural home for such works. After the fall of Western Roman Empire, the Byzantines were the torchbearers for the Roman way in their own minds and in reality, to the extent that they referred to themselves as Romans. They took preserving the Roman culture very seriously. 500 years later, complete works of Sophocles and Euripides were still said to exist there, but these two were decimated in the sacking of the city in 1203 CE, along with many other texts that now only leave a shadow on the record. This was not the fall of the city to the Ottomans, but the sacking by crusaders whose Christian zeal was no respecter of pagan texts, however ancient. Anything that was saved was probably in the hands of monks, not all of whom thought pre-Christian texts should be destroyed. Many of these texts ended up preserved in monasteries in southern Italy, where they would re-emerge in the Renaissance period. And that re-emergence was slow. Latin was largely only accessible to the clergy and the educated wealthy, the recipients of the new learning from the newly established but growing universities. But ancient Greek was even less known. The text did come north from Italy, but slowly. And it was not until the Dutch scholar Erasmus translated some Euripides that the text became known to even the most scholarly. And that spread only continued slowly because of the difficulties with dealing with pagan texts. There was no way the pre-Christian ethics of 5th century BCE Greece could be reconciled with the current Christian values. That view was further complicated because the works of the Roman Seneca were known and had become the basis for understanding of the classical world. That understanding acted as a barrier to interpretation to this alternate Greek view that was now being presented. Seneca and the Romans were more recent, to a degree Christian, and wrote in a language that was more accessible. So it's they that held influence over the Northern European playwrights of the 15th and 16th century, playwrights who themselves had tremendous influence over the theatrical world in the succeeding years. But the originals did live on, and the Italian humanists of the 16th century kept them alive through translation and adaptation – until, in later 16th and 17th centuries, German and French dramatists picked them up and used the themes and plots in free adaptations. 
the trail of plays through European culture then becomes quite diverse and will no doubt touch on some of them as they impact on theatrical life in these times, when we get there. As far as the story of Greek new comedy goes, it's tempting to see the drowning of Menander as a useful bookend, but of course, much as this was a loss, it wasn't quite the end of the genre. With his death and that of Philemon about 30 years later in 262 BCE, there are no new writers of renown that we know of. The theatre remained a popular pastime, and new plays were written, but festivals began to rely more and more on revivals. With the dispersal of theatre out into the Hellenistic world and the centre of that world moving to Egypt, the taste for comedy seems to have declined, and no inspirational or exciting dramatist appeared to breathe new life into the form until the Roman writers pick it up in later centuries. This change can be seen as an effect of theatre being more widespread through the Hellenistic world and no longer centred on Athens and tied to the religious festivals. Old comedy was already well gone, without hope of revival, thanks to its Athenian-centric political interests, so new comedy was the only comic form carried forward, and this in a repetitious form that, it seems, presented little, if anything, that was new and significant in the development of theatre. There's good evidence that in the 320s BCE the Theatre of Dionysus was significantly refurbished in stone and other works followed in later years. Although Athens was no longer the centre of the theatrical world, it seems that theatre was still an important factor in Athenian life and a popular pastime. The festivals at the Dionysia and Linnea continued, but were no longer funded by rich individuals. The state took on that funding role, and contracts with guilds of craftsmen and performers were negotiated for the productions in each year. Costs were no doubt kept to a minimum, and, as we have seen, new comedy lent itself to requiring less grandiose use of extras, props, costumes and stage machinery. Costuming is a good example. As it changed over the years, the special colourful robes were gone. Male characters were dressed more or less as in everyday life, with just a single-piece white tunic. Other characters were costumed to their character type, but still in a simple fashion. The old man character wore a white cloak the slave a short tunic, the old woman dressed in green or blue, the young woman in white. So costume became part of the character identifier in the same way that mask was. The Theatron had always been a multi-purpose building. In the earliest times, it is speculated that for the largest crowds it was the only space big enough in Athens, so was used for political meetings, and even before the Roman taste for entertainment took over, there were other forms of entertainment. As already mentioned, in the Alexandrian period, the pageant was popular. Put on to celebrate anniversaries of the regime and military victories, they involved thousands of performers and ostentatious displays of wealth and power. And at the other end of the scale, there were small touring groups of actors, musicians, acrobats and other performers who travelled from festival to festival or just pitched up in a town to perform for whatever coins the locals would throw. The concept of busking goes back a long way. Of all these forms of entertainment, the one that's of most interest from a theatrical point of view is the development of mime. The name is derived from the Greek mimos, meaning imitator, which in turn is used in the name of a masked dancer, pantomimos. The idea of wordless drama goes back as far as the 6th century BCE, and it's assumed it came out of the same impulses that created tragedy and comedy, and probably as an integral part of both. 
With actors masked and required to make gestures visible to all in a large area of the auditorium, the development of a form that includes mime seems obvious, as a part of the desire to imitate and caricature. As it developed into a refined, singular form, it offered options for those who couldn't sing or speak well in public. As a form, it grew alongside tragedy and comedy, to the extent that mime artists are evidenced throughout the Greek-speaking world in the 5th century BCE, and they seem to have been good at adapting performances to the local situation, making it a popular, if unofficial, art form. It was not until the later years of the festivals that mime became accepted, and with the general decline in formalised theatre, mime became more popular. It was a popularity that was carried into the Roman period, and from there on to medieval Italy and beyond. In the Greek period, mime groups performed for the wealthy at private parties and symposiums, and were reputed to have a large repertoire. It's said that they were able to perform specific tales on request at a moment's notice. And it's speculated that by the time of the new comedy period, actors were earning extra income by performing for such wealthy and private groups, perhaps repeating roles or major speeches from various roles that they had learnt for performance at the festivals. So mime being performed in these circumstances is probably not a great leap. For more evidence on mime, we again have to turn to vase paintings. As with the satire, they're helpful in getting us some understanding of how the performance costumed and performed, but have to be treated carefully, as the illustrations are not necessarily realistic in every respect. There are obvious constraints in a realistic portrait of a scene on a vase, but nevertheless, they're useful. Perhaps most significantly, there are many examples of attic vases that show unquestionably female performers of mime, so it seems it was the mime troupe that was the first to allow female performers. The vases depict acrobatic moves, dancing and stylized poses, which include something that looks like a sword dance. They're taken to be mimed storytelling. And just to be clear, I'm not talking about the white-faced performer in a striped shirt and white gloves, which is a much later tradition. In its original form, as best as we can tell, this was mimed movement, gesture and dance that was likely backed by music and sometimes poetry or prose spoken over the mime. It was about 300 BCE when mime became part of the official festival, although it never became part of the dramatic competitions, so perhaps was never accepted by purists as a true art form. In Alexandria, mime became very popular, and there are a few surviving examples of prose and poetry written specifically for mime artists to act out. That slight evidence suggests that the subject matter of mime was similar to that of new comedy, romantic intrigues between maidens and young men, and how they're nearly thwarted by rivals up to no good. Some of the evidence from the vases is difficult to date, and may in fact relate to new comedy or satire. So in a more speculative vein, it's thought that some mime even continued the comedic practice of parodying the tragedies, reducing them to slapstick and burlesque. So revival, new comedy and mime continued in performance in theatres that also held other entertainments and became less and less tied to the Dionysian festival and the religious impulse. In the 3rd century BCE, the influence of Greek or Hellenistic culture over the Roman is still very clear, but after this, the tide turns as the power and influence of Rome grew to become the dominating force in the next centuries. So this seems a good place to leave the Greek history, and in future we'll be speaking about the Greek legacy as it influences the Roman period.
The decline of the Hellenistic influence as the post-Alexander Empire slowly collapses and the rise of Rome and the Roman influence is a complicated period as the influences flowed both ways. But that's something for future episodes. Throughout the story of Greek theatre, there's been a tension between the number of complete or near-complete plays we have available to enjoy and the apparent number of plays that were actually written. Given the span of time and the fragility of written materials, the loss of complete works is understandable, but how can we know of the existence of so much more theatrical output? One source is later Roman commentators, who wrote in some detail on the nature and content of Greek drama. We have to remember they were often recounting previously reported anecdotes from works now lost that were written centuries earlier, and it's likely that many of the taller tales are exaggerated truth or repetition of stories put about at the time with no understanding of why they were circulated, but they are nevertheless a useful source. In terms of the names of plays, poets and the history of the festival competitions, the Suda is the most comprehensive record that we have. The Suda was compiled in Byzantium in the later part of the 10th century by an unknown author. For want of a better word, it's an encyclopaedia that attempts to record knowledge from both the Christian and pagan world. Written in Greek, it includes about 30,000 entries and is our window onto many lost texts that it quotes from. Large parts of it are devoted to the definition of words and explanation of their derivation, which gives an insight into the philology of the time. Other parts are devoted to biographies of kings, politicians, church leaders and literary figures. Works from antiquity are heavily referenced. Included in the Suda are lists of Greek plays, playwrights and the chronology of the competing plays at the Dionysia and Linnea festivals. Gaps in the chronology have been filled from other sources and although the list is far from complete, it gives a sense of the progression of Athenian taste and the changing fortunes of the poets. And when we look at this list, the sheer volume of practitioners and their output is quite astounding. We know of thousands of plays, if some only by their title, and hundreds of playwrights, if some only by their name. What still stands out to me as an anomaly is that we think the playwrights only wrote to order to the needs of a festival, and the little we do know about them comes from these two Athenian festivals. From quite early times, to accommodate the number of plays being written, there must have been festivals in many other cities presenting these works, presumably in a similarly competitive model. In fact, archaeology and a few surviving examples tell us that there were theatre buildings of varying sizes throughout Attica and the broader Greek world, even before Alexander and the Romans came along. But we have this huge knowledge gap in what was presented there and what the audiences thought of it. In the next part of this conclusion, I'll be looking a bit more at some of those theatres, but sadly, I still don't see a way to really understand how and where all these works were presented and how they were received. As for the Athenian festivals, the city Dionysia continued until sometime into the 2nd century BCE. The last recorded winner we know was in 154 BCE, one Charian who presented an otherwise unknown comedy. The last winning tragedy we have reliably recorded was in 372 BCE, only 30 years after Sophocles got his posthumous win for Oedipus at Colonus. The Linnea festival came to an end sometime before the Dionysia, but exact dates are not known. It feels like a sad, slow end to a great Athenian tradition that had lasted for more than five centuries. 
While Athens was in charge, and even for a good period after it wasn't, the festivals were a major part of the annual cycle of city life, and its very survival is testament to the importance of theatre to the life of the city, even in the worst of times. Next time really is the last part of season one of the podcast, The Ancient Greek Theatre. I'm going to conclude with a look at some of the surviving evidence for the theatre buildings that tell us something of how they worked and the effect they had on the development of performance and the audience. As you may already have seen, the podcast is now available on YouTube on the History of European Theatre Podcast channel, so if YouTube is your thing, you can now listen to us there. Of course, we're still available on all good podcast apps and Spotify and, well, all over the place. And if you see anywhere where you think we should be, but we're not, please let me know and I'll put that right. It's been very gratifying to see the audience for the podcast growing slowly and steadily, and so far I've avoided asking for reviews, but I'm told that reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular really do make a difference to the visibility of podcasts in what is now a very crowded marketplace. So if you do have a few minutes to spare and are enjoying the podcast, please do leave a quick review and help others who love the theatre and theatre history find us. And a very big thank you to you if you've already left a review. Podcasting can be a bit of a lonely business at times that requires a lot of self-motivation, so any and all words of encouragement are very gratefully received and appreciated. So I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns, in the meantime you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. (laughs) 